The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Amen. So this morning might be a little different than a typical sermon, but I'd ask that you bear with me. Um, in this particular season of my life, this teaching came kind of at a good time. Uh, as some of you guys know, we're, we're actively in the preparation of planting a new church in Grants Pass. Uh, Heritage is sending us and a team of, of people out, and, and you'll hear more about that in a couple of weeks. But, um, you know, one of the things about church planting that's really hard is as, uh, you really um, are an evangelist more than you are a pastor at first. You know, if I've been here working at this church for six years as a pastor, and, and when you're a pastor, you're around Christians, and you spend most of your time interacting with Christians, and, and when you're interacting with Christians, mostly you agree on things. Um, the last four months being in Grants Pass, I've purposely been spending more time with non-Christians in an effort and desire to, to, uh, to plant a church in the biblical sense, which is to see people come to Christ and be converted and begin being discipled. Uh, and as I've been doing that, um, it's been really pressing for me in a good and a hard way. Because it's, it's just hard when you're around people that don't agree with you. Any of you guys that, that work in secular environments or have family that are non-Christians or you're, you're in a daily interaction with non-Christians, you know how awkward and how hard and how tense it is sometimes to be around people that completely disagree with you. So in one sense, it's been really good because it's forced me to think about what I believe. And in another sense, it's been really hard. And so when I approached this teaching and I started thinking, okay, how do we tackle this, this misconception that Christians shouldn't judge, I realized this is really the big issue, isn't it? The world looks at Christians and they assume that we are nothing more but bigoted, intolerant, judgmental people. We really need to understand where that attack is coming from. Is there any validity to it? How do we respond to it? And how do we as, as Christians interact with a world that largely disagrees with what we believe? And these are some of the things that I want to tackle this morning. So before we get to Matthew chapter 7, I need to do a little bit of background work with you to, to help you kind of understand where our culture is coming from a little bit. So if you'll bear with me on this. When I was a kid, uh, you know, um, not all that long ago, but about 20 years ago, I remember sitting in sermon after sermon after sermon where the, the pastor would talk about how the world was just getting worse and worse and worse. And how the Western world was moving more and more and more towards the kind of a society where Christians could no longer exist without being persecuted. It seemed like there was this rise in secularism, this idea that, that we should get rid of religion. And so we thought, when I was a kid, we thought in 10 to 20 years we would all be in this place of persecution. Well, 20 years has gone by, and it's not exactly where we are. And I'd actually like to suggest to you this morning that something else has happened, something that's actually, um, in some ways, feels easier, but it's actually harder for us as Christians. We're not sitting like we thought we were going to be in a place of persecution. We're actually sitting in a place of being ignored, which I think, in some ways, is, is much harder. What has happened instead of persecution is something else. We've, we've shifted, as a culture, our worldview. Now let me explain something really quick. We've gone from, from largely a, a, a worldview of modernism to a worldview of postmodernism. Now over the last hundred years, the large kind of push for, for, for uh, thinking in the world has come from people that, that are modernists. And what a modernist says is that the world is terrible, the world is broken, and the way that we fix it is through science, education. The enemy in that worldview is religion. Religion is thought of as sort of like humanity 1.0. It was, it was humanity's first kind of uh, idea on how to deal with the brokenness of the world. So with the rise of, 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 of information and all this kind of stuff, the world started to say, hey, we can fix the world. Our utopian vision is actually that if we stop being so closed-minded with religion and we start focusing on science, that will fix the world. And so you got a lot of these people coming up in, uh, in the ranks like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens that were extremely anti-Christian, and they were pushing all this anti-Christian sentiment. Um, and for a while, it started to feel like this is the trend. This is the way the culture is going. Pretty soon, we're, everyone's going to hate us and persecute us. That was modernism. But the problem is modernism failed. It failed because my generation and the generation after and the generation before started realizing that technology and science and intellectualism and all this, it's actually not fixing the world. Did you notice that? The smartphone didn't fix the world. In many ways, my generation's starting to go, wait, it's, this smartphone's actually making my world harder. <laughs> it's lowered our attention span. It's gone from 12 seconds to 8 seconds. Did you know that? If you couldn't make it through that sentence, 
you know what I'm talking about, okay? Our, uh, like, the smartphone hasn't fixed anything. Science isn't fixing anything. Intellectualism isn't fixing anything. Lack of religion isn't fixing everything. So you have the next generation of millennials and down who are going, well, then what's going to fix the world? Because we know it's broken. So modernism gave way to something else, which is kind of in style right now in our worldview, and that is postmodernism. And postmodernism has a little bit of a different bent to it. Postmodernism doesn't have a problem with the spiritual things. It doesn't have a problem with religion. Postmodernism sees the enemy not as religion. It sees the enemy as intolerance. The way that we fix the world is by getting along. The way that we fix the world is by stopping talking about things that we disagree about. So it's not that we need to get rid of religion. We just need to find religions that are more agreeable that don't fight with one another. That's the evil in the eye of postmodernism, is, is, is not getting along. So in order to achieve the utopian vision of postmillennialism, we have to stop talking about things that divide us. If something divides us, don't talk about it. Now, that world that we live in right now is really hard when you're trying to talk to people about the gospel. Have you noticed that? I think that the problem my generation is going to have, and you guys still, so much of this is, is we, we are trying to deal with people not, that are not opposed to Christianity. They just don't care about what we have to say. It's not that they, it's not that they are, are anti or against Christians. They just don't want to hear anything that might cause them to have any kind of friction. Because friction is what ruins the world, right? I mean, how many times have you heard, if we just didn't have religion... If we just didn't have religions that said they were the only truth, then we wouldn't have wars, we wouldn't have problems, and everyone would get along. The world would be a better place. So what I'm finding is I'm engaging with these non-Christians. It's not that they're like, oh, you're a Christian, I hate you. It's that they're like, oh, you're a Christian, eh, let's just not talk. I don't want to talk about that. As soon as I tell someone I'm a pastor, let alone a church planner, there's an instant change in their demeanor. It's not because they hate me now. It's because they realize that I'm going to try to talk to them about something that tells them that their worldview is wrong, and they don't like that. That's uncomfortable. They've been told that that's what made, has made the world a bad place. Not sin and death and brokenness. It's disagreeing. That's, what made, that's what's made the world a bad place. Are you with me? So this is the world that we're kind of in. This is the world that we're dealing with. People aren't wanting to engage about deep and hard and real things. It's amazing. I was, I was listening the other day to something. We were talking about the fact that um, American evangelicalism the, 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 was at its height right after World War II. And they were talking about how interesting that is. Why was that? Why was there so many conversions right after World War II? It's because after the war, there was just, just this, like, l- this litany of brokenness. All these guys coming home from war, that their, their lives were shattered, and they saw people blown apart, and their best friends died. And they just didn't know what to do with the things that they'd seen. And, and what it did is it opened up culture to asking real questions about real things. And because they were open to asking real questions about real things, the gospel actually had those answers and came in and people get, began to get saved. But since then, we've stopped asking hard questions. We've stopped asking real questions. And now we're back in this place where, where the gospel seems to not have an end. It feels like there's no interface for truth conversations in our culture. That, for me, is the hardest thing. How do I get someone who's not a Christian to sit down and actually tell me what they think about the world and life and spirituality? They don't want to talk about it. We could talk about the latest Netflix series. We could talk about our hobbies. We could talk about politics, even. But religion is off-limits. This is a real hurdle for us. It's a real problem. The gospel in America is not in danger, I think, of being persecuted as much as it is in danger of being changed. I don't think that Christianity is going to go away. I think what they're going to do is change it into a Christianity that is culturally palpable, culturally uh, palatable, pardon me. A Christianity that fits with the cultural worldview. A Christianity that's culturally appropriate with Christians that we hold up as examples that are, Christian, that are culturally appropriate. Um, now, I'm not getting political here or any means, but just as an example, um, if you guys have been watching the Democratic um, you know, debates, there's, there's a candidate right now named Pete Buttigieg, and he's, he's an interesting guy for a lot of reasons. He seems to be a very nice guy. He's a, he was an, uh, an ex-veteran in the military. Um, he's, he's married, he has children, and he claims to be a Christian. He's also openly homosexual. 
Now, he's a really nice guy. Now, you look at a guy like that, and you think this guy is the Christian that our culture wants. This guy, he, he's, he's, he's faithful to his partner. They have children. He's a, a devoted, uh, supposedly devoted Christian. And the world goes, wait a minute, this is the Christian that we want right here. So we need to, what we need to do is we need to change this thing, which seems just to be sort of bigoted and outdated and intolerant, to fit what our culture says a Christian should look like. So what we have today is we have quote-unquote Christians that really don't say much at all about what they really believe. I went on Google, like you do when you're trying to research things, right? And uh, I was trying to find some real, like I was trying to make a point in this sermon um, that I just couldn't seem to make, that the world hates Christians and they're all mad at us. And I got on and I started Googling. I was trying to find statements from Obama or Oprah or any of these kind of culture shapers, thinking, uh, thinking shapers in, in, our, in our world. I was trying to find these anti-Christian sentiments that they had said, and I couldn't find any. What I found was a lot of really agreeable statements, Things that are just barely true enough to where we can all go, I like that. Uniting statements. It's really hard to figure out what certain people in the limelight actually believe about God or anything else. They don't really say. Our, our culture is in this place where they actually don't want to say what they believe. They'd rather just say agreeable things. So how do you talk about something like the gospel, which is in and of itself a truth claim with people that aren't interested in talking about it? And let me just say, I don't think we as Christians are prepared for this. This is why I'm spending this time talking about this with you this morning. I don't think we're prepared. I think we're still fighting the wrong battle. I think we, we still think that culture is just moving towards secularism and wants nothing to do with Christianity. They, they hate us and they're mad at us. In reality, they're, they're reshaping Christianity right under our, our nose. I, I think that the real battle for us is not going to be not being persecuted. It's going to be figuring out how do we get people to care about the message that we know that they need? How do we get people to ask the real questions that we know we can answer. We no longer have the home court advantage. And, and the pressure from culture to, for us to change Christianity, to change what the Bible said, is so intense and so powerful that it's pushing us towards three different avenues. First, it's pushing us towards hiding. And this is what I think a lot of Christians are doing right now. They don't understand um, why oil and water, Christian, non-Christian, it just feels so weird at this point. So they just kind of put their head down at work. They don't let anyone know that they're a Christian because if they do... It might get weird. They may not know how to talk about it. The other option is they fight. They get angry. They get mad at culture. They get mad at, 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 at people that don't agree with them, and they get furious. And the third option is, like I said, they just change the gospel to fit. Let's just make it fit. And I suggest to you all three of those reasons, are all, th- all three of those options are bad. They're not helpful. If we hide from this awkwardness, the true gospel is left in a vacuum and, the, and, the, and the, the world will decide for itself what the gospel says. If we fight, we just prove them wrong or prove them right. We prove them right that Christians are just bigoted, angry people who only want our worldview. And if we change, the gospel means nothing because only one gospel can save and that's the true one. A fake one doesn't save. I want to read, hopefully to get some teeth into this a little bit, I want to read for you a quote um, from a guy named Josh Harris. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. This has been kind of um, something on the forefront of at least the Christian kind of news scene. Joshua Harris was, um, he was a pastor for a really long time uh, and an author, pretty, pretty uh, well-known. Um, and he, he wrote a book called like, Kiss Dating Goodbye when he was like 18, um, writing a book about marriage when you're 18 and not married always seems like a bad idea, but whatever. Um, he, he wrote a book about it and it really shaped the whole conservative courting kind of culture in, in America. Well, anyways, he just recently released some news that he was divorcing, that him and his wife were separating, and then he, just a few days later, he released another thing uh, explaining that he had actually walked away from his faith, okay? Um, and that was, that was kind of shaking for me. It was kind of jarring for me, jarring for my wife, jarring for a lot of people, because this seemed like a guy that was really grounded. He'd written a lot of books that we'd read, um, you know, seemed to really understand the truth, and now he's sort of walked away from his faith. And I just want to read this statement from him to try to unpack a little bit about why this is and how this relates to what I'm saying. Here's what he says. He said, the information that was left out of our announcement, speaking of the divorce, um, is that I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase of this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I'm not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, 
but I'm not there now. Martin Luther said that the entire life of believers should be repentance. There's beauty in that sentiment, regardless of your view of God. I have lived in repentance for the past several years, repenting of my self-righteousness, that's a good thing, uh, my fear-based approach to life, the teaching of my books, my views of women in the church, and my approach to parenting, to name a few. Um, now, those, those are things that over the last uh, 10 years or so, he's been sort of openly saying, hey, I was wrong on this, and some of those things were good. He needed to repent of some of those things, as, as sort of many of us. Then he goes on, he says, but I specifically want to add to the list now to the LGBT plus community. Oh, that's supposed to be Q. I don't know why that's W. I, I want to say that I am sorry for the views that I thought in my books and as a pastor regarding sexuality. I regret standing against marriage equality for not affirming you and your place in the church and for any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. I hope you can forgive me. Okay, this was really interesting, and I spent a lot of time thinking about that this week. You can take that down. What would lead someone like Joshua Harris, who's a thinker, seems to be theologically educated, um, who, was, who was very influential in the Christian community, um, to, to all of a sudden say, I'm completely divorcing myself from Christianity, and I'm moving completely the other direction. What's really interesting about his statement is he doesn't say anything about any kind of evidential truth pushing him away from Christianity. He doesn't go, man, I just, I, when I read the Bible, I see that it's contradictory, or I see that it isn't true, or I see that the resurrection just doesn't have v- valid proof or truth, so I'm moving away from, he doesn't say that. His reason for moving away from Christianity is that it's too intolerant. It's too judgy. It doesn't fit with this sort of accepting postmodern worldview that says we all have to get along, or we can't live. Now, what would lead someone like Josh to make a statement and resignation of his biblical faith? I want to suggest, just really quickly, I want to suggest seven confusions in our culture that are leading and will continue to lead Christians down this road of, 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 of crisis in their faith. There are many in this valley, in this city already that I'm speaking with that are confused about what to do with these issues, that feel like they can't keep the, the traditional Christianity that they believed because it doesn't feel like it fits our culture. So seven confusions that we need to be aware of as Christians. The first is this, a purpose confusion. We have a purpose confusion in our culture. We hear a lot of things like this. Your highest loyalty should be to yourself. Your greatest asset in life is to believe in yourself. Society will flourish when all people have realized their individual purpose and desire. This is the utopian vision right now. We will have a perfect world once every single person is fulfilling their ultimate desire for self and happiness. This is so different than the way it used to be in history. We largely lived in cultures where people were part of a nation and they carried nationalistic pride or they carried family pride or they they were ready to engage in their part in a bigger group of people. But now we're an individualistic society. Now we live for ourselves. Now we determine what we do and the choices we make and the money we spend, not on what other people think we should do, but on what we want to do. And we search for that from inside. That's Eastern religion. I look inside to find my ultimate purpose. Christianity says it's not on the inside, it comes from the outside. What's on the inside is sinful, okay? So we have a purpose confusion. That means that people don't understand what they're supposed to do in life and they're making all their decisions based on what they think is gonna make them happy. Now, if everyone in a society is making decisions based on what they think they want, based on their own individual needs, things will get real messy real quick. Here's an example of this. Um, Family, loyalty, legacy is all sacrificed at the altar of success and individual fulfillment right now. Here's a a quote from uh, Sheryl Sandberg. Now, I, I just have to say this, by the way. I'm not putting these quotes up here to mock these people. I'm not putting these quotes up here to be harsh against these people. I'm just trying to help you see, when you see things like this, put on your critical minds, your critical eyes, and see the flaws in this thinking. Here's what Sheryl Sandberg, she was the CEO of Facebook, or still is. Um, Is that the the beginning of the slide? Yeah, moreover, okay, this is the Times writing an article. Moreover, Sandberg reports that one of the main reasons women undermine their chances of executive positions is that before they have children, they begin to craft career plans that would provide them with more flexibility and reduced responsibilities. Um, They're basically saying, she's saying, you're forfeiting your chance of success in life um, because you're posturing your life in such a way to have a family. This, says Sandberg, can result in the tragedy of women leaving the workforce altogether because their jobs become less satisfying than raising their children. Next 
In her view, staying home with children is simply a lifestyle choice, one that can be resisted by crafting a more attractive option in the workplace. Leaving a child with a paid caretaker is, quote, heart-wrenching. Only the possibility of a compelling, challenging, and rewarding job, she writes, can make it a fair contest. Okay, this isn't a, a slam against going to work. But my point here is that Sheryl Sandberg is saying that my ultimate good is what makes me ultimately fulfilled. And if that means you have to sacrifice time with your children and invest your money in childcare so that you can go and make your way in business, then do that. Isn't that interesting and really sad? My point simply being we have a, a confusion of purpose in this country. We don't understand what we're here for and therefore we're defining it for ourselves. Secondly, we have a truth confusion. We have a truth confusion. Truth has become relative. Do I need to explain that? Truth is no longer truth. Truth is whatever you want truth to be, and your truth can be truth, and my truth can be truth, and they can both be true at the same time, unless my truth says your truth isn't true, right? Okay, I don't need to say anything else on that. We have a love confusion. A love confusion. Listen to the definition I found in the dictionary of love. An intense feeling of deep affection. A great interest and pleasure in something. Feeling of deep romantic or sexual attachment. Those are all sensual. Those are all feeling-based. That's all what I feel. I mean, love, we have a love confusion. What is love? Love is not what you do or a person or a choice or, or, or a decision or an action. Love is a feeling. So therefore, once the feeling goes away, love's gone, right? We have a love confusion. Now, try telling the world that love is not a feeling. It's a reality they have to conform to. Have fun with that, okay? We have, number four, we have an identity confusion. An identity confusion. Uh, who am I? How do we answer that question? Who am I? How do I? We hear things like this. We're not defined by who God says we are. We're defined by what we say we are and what our largest desires are. We are most ourselves when we are most happy. Sexual preference, gender of choice, various external things are now somehow intrinsically fused with our identity. Okay, now follow me on this. In, in Josh Harris's statement, there was something he said that I wanted you to catch. He said this. He said, I apologize. I regret standing against marriage equality for not affirming you and your place in the church. Now, what he's saying is, is that your choice, your sexual preference or your gender identity, that is who you are. And for me to um, reject that kind of decision or lifestyle is actually to, to reject you. Did you catch that? We, we have this idea that, that your sexual preference is your identity. That's, that's not true. What is our identity? Where does it come from? It certainly has to be more than, than, than who you decide you want to marry. Your identity is more than your sexual preference. So he's apologizing to someone for, for, for disagreeing with their lifestyle because he now thinks that their lifestyle is their identity. Does that make sense? Your lifestyle is not your identity. We have a confusion about who we are, the self. Who is the self? Not to love someone's choices now in our culture means that you don't love them. So if you tell your son or daughter that you do not agree with their choice to do X, Y, and Z, all of a sudden now you do not love them because their choices are their identity. Is that true? No. Your choices are not your identity. Fifthly, we have a tolerance confusion. This is really important. Take note of this. Um, D.A. Carson wrote a really good book, um, which I have not read entirely, but I've read parts of it, um, that called uh, The Intolerance of Tolerance. And he goes in, in depth, D.A. Carson, okay, he goes in depth on this. Um, and he's pointing out this fact that we've changed the meaning of tolerance in the last however many years. Tolerance used to mean this, it, mean, it meant that you would peaceably and civilly allow the existence of other views in which you disagree with. So do I agree with um, Islam? Do I agree with Mormonism? No. Am I going to go burn the Mormon church down and tell them they got to get out? No. That would be intolerant. 
That's, okay, that just seems like obvious. That's the way we used to think about. So you allow people, this is the way our country was built, right? You allow people to have different religious uh, views, but you don't go burn their church out and kick them out of your country. Okay, that's tolerance. But that's not tolerance anymore. We've changed tolerance to be something entirely different. Now tolerance means to equally validate all views as equally true and valid. Did you catch that? To equally validate all views as equally true and valid. So for me to tell someone that they're wrong is intolerant. For me to disagree with someone and tell them that their truth is less true than my truth, I become bigoted, I become intolerant. Again, the utopian vision for this country for the people that think like that, is that in order for us to have a happy place, we have to stop telling people they're wrong. That is the problem. That's the issue. We've redefined tolerance. We should be for tolerance in the old definition. As Christians, we should be for it. We should look at things like the Crusades, where, where Christians went in and killed people of other religions because they, they didn't agree with them. That, that is absolutely wrong and absolutely intolerant. But if I'm not allowed to say that someone else is wrong, we've all just shut our brains off, right? The problem with Josh Harris's statement is that not that he is apologizing for his views, it's that he's apologizing for God's views. And the problem is, is that he's turned seemingly, and again, I don't know him, and I don't know, there's probably more to this story, but it seems as though he's turned away from his, his faith in God and God's word simply because it is, quote-unquote, intolerant. Is that a good reason to walk away from something? Sixthly, we have a religion confusion. A religion confusion. Religion has been pushed into the place of something you keep at home, that you don't talk about. Because why? It might cause division. Now that was something completely foreign to the, the era of the biblical authors. I mean, these guys all knew what they believed. It was obvious what you believed. It was at the front and center of who you were as a person, and now our religion is something we just don't bring up and don't bring out. It's an auxiliary component to our lives. Listen to what Andy Rooney said. I thought this was interesting. He's that radio and TV writer that we all know. Uh, he said this. He said, I'd be more willing to accept religion even if I didn't believe it, if I thought it made people nicer to each other, but I don't think it does. Now, that's cute, okay? Um, but here's the problem with it. Can you put it back, back up there really quick? First of all, he's saying he'd be willing to accept something even if he didn't believe in it. That's kind of telling, isn't it? I, just, I believe it just because I like it, not because it's actually true. Secondly, um, he's basing his decision of whether or not he would believe in um, a faith or a religion based on whether or not it makes people nice, not based on whether or not it's true. Do you see the thinking here? It's not about what is true, what is real, what is right. It's about what makes me feel good. And do I like this or do I not like this? And if I don't like it, I'm not going to believe in it. And if I don't believe in it, therefore it's not true because I don't believe it. You can believe whatever you want. That doesn't make it true. I'm literally, uh, I just talked to a guy last week, seemingly educated, um, easy to talk to fellow, and he literally believes, I'm not kidding, he literally believes the earth is flat. Okay. I don't care. He's a nice guy. He's a really nice guy. And I could go, man, you know, he's a really nice guy and I like him and maybe he's right. He's, it's true for him. The world's flat for you. The world's round for me. Let's go hang out. Does that work? It doesn't work because the world's not flat. It just isn't. Nice guy. Sixthly, or seventhly, pardon me, pardon me. We have a doctrinal confusion and this is, this is within the church. The church has not been consistent about how we are addressing these things. The church is not being consistent about what the Bible says. And because of that, the Bible has been allowed to be redefined to fit a more tolerant world perspective. The church has to be clear. Now, this is where we're gonna get into some Bible here because uh, there's confusion about what the scripture says about judging, this intolerance that we're being accused of. Uh, because people, you'll never guess, the number one verse that people quote that are not Christians or even Christians that quote in the Bible, what is it? Don't judge. Stop judging me. Your Bible says it. The Bible that I don't believe is true. I'm going to quote it. Don't judge. Stop judging. What, is that, what does that verse mean? What does it say? I want to look at it with you because I actually think a lot of the misconception, a lot of the problem is centered around a, a misinterpretation of this particular passage. 
So, in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but, not, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, before we get into what that is saying, let me just note a few things that this is not saying. Now, Jesus doesn't give a lot of clarity here in the, the two words, judge not. Even the word judge, I wish I could say, well, the Greek word means this and that, but in reality, the Greek word means everything. It can mean anything you want it to mean. Okay, so Jesus isn't being particularly clear on what he means by judge not. Um, so we have to use other scripture and say, well, what does he not mean by that? He means, uh, there's a few things he's not saying in that passage. The first thing he's not saying is that we should be pacifists. That we should just let people do whatever we want and never confront them. He's not saying we should ha- not have courts or judges or government. Romans 13 is clear about that. He's not saying we shouldn't be discerning whether actions are appropriate or safe to draw boundaries with people. If somebody's coming into your home that's unsafe and you say, hey, I think you're unsafe, and they say, don't judge me, <laughs> that doesn't fly. Okay, that's not, Jesus was clear, the Bible is clear that we are to, out of a love for justice and mercy, we are to set healthy boundaries around people that could cause harm. That's biblical. He's not, say, he's not con- saying we can't condemn false doctrine. Somebody walks in here and says, I'm Jesus. I actually met a guy last week who said he was Jesus. Um, and, you know, if someone comes in here and says, uh, that's not true, and he goes, don't judge me. Oh, okay, you know, I'm still going to tell everybody the truth. Um, and we know that because Jesus, all throughout the Sermon of the Mount, which is where this particular passage is placed, all throughout Jesus is calling people to judge. <laughs> he's calling them to judge in a, in a sense that he's calling them to use their discernment to make particular decisions. Uh, like, for instance, the next verse, he says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, I'm not going to get into that passage, but my point being is that Jesus is saying, Hey, be sure and discern this. He's not saying don't discern. He's not saying don't call out false doctrine. Um, Jesus certainly had plenty of judgmental things to say in terms of doctrine and truth. Here's another thing he's not saying, and this is important. Listen to this one. He's not saying Christians cannot address, address each other's sin. So stop saying that when someone calls you on something who's another brother or a sister, even if they do it in a totally stupid, jerky way. You can't say, Jesus said, don't judge. Listen to this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 11, he says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Well, that sounds judgy. Or is an idolater or a reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That's really judgy. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Who's he talking about? He's talking about non-believers. He's saying, I have nothing to do with judging non-Christians. Is it not those out inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil from, or the evil person from among you. Paul is saying that it's our job as Christians to judge one another. And God will judge the world. And he's not talking about being critical. He's not talking about being condemning. He's not talking about gossiping or slandering. There's all kinds of uh, things in the New Testament that speak against those things. But he is saying that for Christians within the Christian community, we do have a mandate and a call to judge each other. By judge, I mean to, to call out each other's sin. In the Old Testament, the prophets were the preeminent voices in the Old Testament. And what was their job? Their job was to, to speak God's judgment, calling Israel to conform to the reality of Yahweh's covenant. And in the New Testament, our job as Christians is to press each other lovingly and graciously towards conforming to God's new covenant. It doesn't mean we get to be jerks. It doesn't mean we get to be judgmental in the sense of condemning or being critical. But it does mean, as Galatians 6, 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. And listen, a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So we are to lovingly, graciously. Now, that's within the Christian community. But what about outside of the Christian community? 
How are we to speak about, talk about, react towards um, Hollywood stars, people on the fronts of the magazines, people that are in our workplace, people that um, are not believers, people that are clearly um, not Christians? Should we just not say anything or speak anything against their lifestyle or their moral choices or anything like that? Well, let me talk about what Jesus is saying here. He says four things. First thing he says is he gives a command. He says, judge not. Now, this is a command against condemnation, not evaluation. What he's, he's not saying that you can't look at someone's lifestyle and go, those choices he's making are really bad. That's really unhealthy. He's saying you can't look at someone and say, that person's going to hell, that person's evil, that person deci- deserves to die. Those are words of condemnation. That's not your job. Now, most likely, this passage was directed towards the Pharisees, who Jesus constantly was calling out for their hypocrisy, and they were some of the most judgmental individuals. They looked at the externals, rather the internal of a person. We have that uh, example Jesus gives of the, the parable where there's the tax collector and the Pharisee, and they're praying together, and the, the, the Pharisee looks over and says, thank God that I'm not like this guy. He doesn't even know that guy. He just knows he's a tax collector. He's made an assumption about that person's interior based on his exterior, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Judge with right judgment. Now, I don't say all that to relieve the pressure of this verse. There is also a clear mandate here from Christ to Christians that we are not to be judgmental people. And I don't want to release that pressure because I think it needs to be there. The reality is, is the people that we make judgments about, we do not know what's going on in their heart. We just don't know. My, my wife and I recently signed up to become CASAs, or like court-appointed special advocate for kids that are in, um, in uh, child welfare, DHS. And, and it's really easy, you know, when you look at these parents at first glance to go, man, these guys are just, they don't take care of their kids and they don't care and they're just terrible parents and they're this and that. And then you start getting into some of the, the, the inner working history of these parents, and you realize that those parents, not even five years ago, they were in child welfare. Their parents abused them. Their parents neglected them. Their parents gave them drugs or allowed them to use drugs. And then just a matter of years later, they're having their own kids. I mean, you start getting into the background of some of these things. I'm not saying that excuses their behavior, but what we should do as Christians is we should go, man, I don't know the reality behind this person's actions. God is going to judge them. How can I love them? How can I come alongside of them? This is the call that Jesus is putting out here. Same thing with people that are famous. I don't know what it is. I just think I can make fun of people that are famous. I don't know why. I just think I get to. Because they're famous. Because they're rich. I don't know. You don't know what's going on in that person's life. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't put up a slide of them quoting something and say, hey, what's this person's worldview? And how do we understand the way they're thinking? But it does mean that we don't become critical or condemning towards them. That's the point. The second thing Jesus says is he gives a warning. He says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Um, I like the message translation on this. It's kind of helpful. He says, don't pick on people. Jump on their failures. Criticize their faults. Unless, of course, you want the same treatment. This is what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about some kind of cosmic karma, but he is talking about the simple fact that the measuring rod that you use to measure others, you will be used to measure with yourself. God will use that same measuring rod on you. Now, think about this. This is sobering. Let's, say, let's just say hypothetically, we stood before God and he judged you, um, of course, ruling out the gospel and Christ and all that. Just say he's judging you and he's judging you based off his perfect, holy nature and how much sin you've done. Now, would you, would you be in trouble? Yes, you'd be in trouble. Let's just say he didn't do that. Let's just say you're sitting before God in judgment and he says, I'm not gonna judge you based on what I've said you should do or my perfect law. I'm gonna judge you based on what you've told other people they should do. How do you think you'd do? It's a terrifying thought that if God simply judged us just based on our standard for other humans, that we would easily be condemned. I mean, I don't hold myself to the same standards that I hold other people to. I just simply don't. This is what Jesus is talking about. Thirdly, he gives an analogy, and this is kind of a comical one here. Look at it again in verse three. He says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? It's like a splinter or a little piece of wood. 
but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? I mean, this is hilarious, right? It's hilarious. This, 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 this person's got something small in their eye, and this guy's like, oh, I'll help. You know, and he walks over with a two-by-four sticking out of his face. This is hilarious. Jesus is using an absurd example because he's addressing absurd behavior. He's addressing absurd behavior. Listen to this. A wrong view of God leads to a wrong view of self, and a wrong view of self leads to a wrong view of others. If you're an extremely judgmental and critical person, it's because you have not seen how, fall, how far short you have fallen from God's perfect standard. And therefore, you have not seen how much others need the same grace that you need. This is what Jesus is trying to point out. He's trying to say, you can't help anybody because you're so blinded by your own stuff that you're not choosing to deal with. Now, what kind of sin is the log referring to? I mean, surely he must be talking about the guy who's got a needle in his arm and, he's, and, he's, and he's, he's, he's murdered someone in his past. He spent some time in jail. He's done all these gross, terrible sins. Surely he's talking about that guy, right? I don't think so. I think Jesus is talking, okay, think about it. If, you, if those were your sins, okay, if those were your sins, if those were the things that you did, you would be aware of them. In fact, you'd be embarrassed of them. You'd be ashamed of them. Jesus is talking about someone who has no clue that he's got a log in his eye. Not the person sitting in prison who knows they've done terrible things. He's talking about the person that doesn't even have a clue that they're completely sinful. He's talking about the sin of self-righteousness. Because self-righteousness is the only sin that you're completely oblivious to. Because you're so self-righteous you don't even realize it. Jesus was harder on the religious self-righteous hypocrite than he was any other human. Jesus was so gentle and so kind and so compassionate to those that were stuck and trapped in sinful behavior and lifestyles that were not believing the truth. And he was so hard on the religious uh, hypocrite that were completely oblivious to their self-righteous. They wouldn't see it. They couldn't see it. They wouldn't wake up to realizing their own state. This is what Jesus is talking about. And the reason this is so serious is because a log in your eye is completely, it completely hinders you from being able to believe the gospel. The gospel is that I need grace. The person with the log in their eye, they can't see that. They don't see their need for grace, so therefore they're at uh, they're an unfair advantage to be able to actually believe the gospel, which says that there is grace for them. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount over and over again talked about the poor in spirit. It's the poor in spirit who are willing to admit their fallenness, willing to admit their brokenness, that are, that are able and ready to receive the kingdom of God through the cross of Christ. And then fourthly, he gives an imperative. Look at verse five. He says, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see it clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, here's what you need to see in this. This is not a call to never deal with someone's speck. Do you catch that? In fact, it, it, he's saying you should help your brother. Deal with his stuff, or your sister, deal with their stuff. But he's saying the only way you're going to be able to do it effectively is if you start dealing with your own stuff. Why is that? Because until you see your own sin, you have no way and no ability to help others deal with theirs. You're just completely blind, completely self-righteous. You ever wonder why new believers are so good at evangelizing? It's not because they have all the answers. It's not because they know all the lingo. It's because they're intrinsically aware of the fact that they need grace. And therefore, they have this ability to cut into others that need grace. The longer we spend in the church, the more time we start to develop logs in our eyes. And those logs, we don't even see them. And a lot of times, it's our wanting people not to, to really get saved. It's our people wanting just to confirm them, conform them to Christian culture. It makes us blind, unable to actually see the deepest needs of people. It's the poor in spirit that have the best ability. So, so this is what Jesus says about judging. He, he, he's, he's not telling us not to, to evaluate people. He's not telling us that we can't clearly um, make a, a, you know, decisions about things or set boundaries, but he is saying that we have to deal with the fact that we are in need of grace. Every time I say something critical about someone else, at the very root of that, at the very heart of that is a failure for me to believe the gospel for myself. I've forgotten how much I need that. I've forgotten how many times I've done that, how many times I've failed in those areas. Now, quickly, as I wrap up here, 
our main question this morning is this. How do we as Christians repent of our defensive and angry posture towards the world while not repenting of the truth of God's word? This is what we have to figure out. This is what we have to figure out. How do we not ask forgiveness for what Jesus has said, like our friend Josh Harris did? How do we, how do we not say, God, I'm sorry for what you said, or world, I'm sorry for what God said? We cannot do that. But at the same time, how we compassionately and lovingly interact with a world that completely disagrees with what we believe. Let me just suggest three quick things and we'll be done. Three things to remember when dealing with this. The first thing is this. The gospel is news. And that's a truth claim. Okay, the gospel. What is the gospel? When you say, when you hear us use that word over and over again, the gospel, the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel, it's just news. It's just news about something that happened. And news, by nature, by definition, news is a truth claim. You're saying, hey, I have something to say, and I believe that it's true. That's news. Unless it's fake news, right? Um, but we won't go there. Uh, news. The gospel is news. And because it's news, it's intrinsically a truth claim. Do not apologize for that. Don't do it. Don't feel bad about that. Don't feel sorry about that. We have nothing to apologize for. That our gospel is a truth claim. If it's not a truth claim, it's not helpful to anyone. What is our news about? Our news is about the fact that there is truth and that that truth came into the world and through that truth we can be saved and become part of his reality. Those are all truth claims. You can't get to the gospel without a truth claim. Listen to what Jesus said. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is the Father's side, he has made him known. He says in John 14, And you know the way to where I'm going, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's what he didn't say. He didn't say, I am one of the ways and I am one of the truths and I am one of the lives and some people can come to the Father through me if that's the way they pick. Pick your way up the mountain. There's plenty. That's not what Jesus said. You can't take this out of the Bible. Don't apologize for what Jesus said. If you take the fact that the, that the gospel is a truth claim away from it, it's no longer the gospel. It's the good news because it's the single way to the Father. It's the truth. He's the life. There's no other way. You have to believe that. And as, as, as much as you may be referred to as an intolerant, closed-minded, bigoted person, you have to believe that. And if you don't, you've robbed the gospel of all of its power and you're not going to help anybody. Okay? They don't need a hug. They need the truth. Now, if you can give them a hug so that they'll listen to the truth, do it. But if you're just wanting to hug the world, you're hugging them straight to hell. They need the truth. The enemy of the world is not intolerance. The enemy of the world is sin and death and, and the devil. These are the enemies, and these are the enemies that Jesus took on the cross. He didn't go to the cross to die for intolerance. He went to the cross to die to take away our sin so that he could purchase salvation for us, so that we could win the battle, not against people disagreeing, but against people who are at war with God. This is the gospel. Don't ever apologize for the fact that it is a truth claim. Listen, this postmodernism thing, it's a mood. It's a mood. It's gonna blow over. Might take a while. But what won't change is what has never changed, and that is the gospel. And that is the truth of God. And this will outlive postmodernism. Just like it outlived modernism. Just like it outlived all of the trends and the moods that have come over the last thousands of years in our world, the truth will stand. It will. And you may not even live to see that mood pass, but you'll be so glad at one point that you held to it. Now I say that also to say this. Secondly, not only is the, not only is the gospel news, it's good news. It's good news. It's not just news, it's good news. It's not a message of restriction. It's a message of freedom. It's not a message of exclusivity and intolerance. It's a universal invitation to God's hope and purpose for the universe. It's not a message of escapism. It's a call to engage in God's work to redeem all the unredeemed places in this world. 
It's not a crutch, it's new legs. It's not, it's not racist, it's the answer to racial divides. It's not a failed world vision, it's the future world vision. It's good news, it's the answer to everyone's problem and you have to believe that or you won't tell anybody yet. You have to. If you don't believe the gospel is the best news in the world, you have no shot at telling people that aren't even asking the questions. Thirdly, the gospel is the message of grace. So preach it with compassion. This is not something to beat someone over the head with. Do you understand that the people that don't believe in the cross, the wrath of God already abides on them? You judging them is like setting someone on fire who's already burning. You saying you know, angry and, and, and demeaning words about someone who doesn't agree with you is like kicking a dead person. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The world is blind and the wrath of God already abides on them. May we have compassion and nothing else for them. When you turn on the news or you turn on the radio or you turn on the TV and you see the, 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 the moral things that you don't agree with, may you not have an angry tone, may you have a sorrowful tone. Tears in your eyes. May I have tears in my eyes when I look at the world and realize the wrath of God is abiding on these people. May we tell them the truth so they could be saved. Instead of getting mad and furious about the degradation of the morality in our country, they are the mission. Do you understand that? The lost are the mission. They are who we're trying to reach. That's the point. The message is a message of grace. Jesus, who was full of grace and truth, is our model. We cannot see truth and love as two opposing realities or we lose the gospel. Amen? My prayer for us is not that we would come at the world like the Pharisees did, chest out, frustrated at the, 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 the opposite thinking, but that we would come like Christ did on his knees, washing feet, serving those who were perishing, pleading with them that they would believe. Would you guys stand? Father, we just thank you so much, God, that even though sometimes we don't even understand how we should interact or interface with this world, we know whom we believed. We know who the truth is. And even if we don't always agree on what we believe as Christians, we know who the truth is. Lord, it's you, Jesus. And we just pray, God, that we would have compassion for this world, compassion for the lost. Lord, that as we interact with non-Christians, Lord, that, that we would have the saltiness, Lord, the light to be able to draw them into the truth that they so desperately need. God, help us understand this world that we live in. Help us understand uh, as good um, messengers of the gospel how to penetrate into this culture with the truth. Pray we'd be good stewards of the gospel that we've been given, Lord. God, we love you. We praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, before we start, as we start worship, we're going to go ahead and um, have the doorkeepers come and uh, receive this morning's tithes and offerings. It's just a way to continue to worship the Lord. Thanks. Everyone needs compassion.